Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is September 11th, 2015, and my guest is Pete Betke, a university professor of economics and philosophy at George Mason University, the BB&T professor for the study of capitalism, and the director of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason. Pete, welcome back to EconTalk. Thanks for having me, Russ. Our topic for today is the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. Uh, we first talked about this in December of 2006, and you actually uh, confessed to me before we started recording that you went back and listened to that episode, which excites me no end. I did not. I kind of wanted to come back fresh to it because I'm sure most listeners uh, don't remember that episode. That was a while ago. But that episode, we taped that. We recorded that a little over a year after the hurricane struck. We're now 10 years after right. that destruction, and you've been involved in a project assessing the recovery and uh, what we can learn from it. So talk about what that study has involved and what's been your role. Yeah, so at the Mercatus Center um, at George Mason University, very soon after uh, Katrina in August of 2005, um, we decided that we were going to try to do a longitudinal study uh, down there about how economies can come back. Um, and so, you know, we went and we got support uh, from various different uh, foundations and whatnot to engage in a, in a study to see how uh, resilient and uh, robust societies are um, in the wake of natural disasters. Um, and we decided to go about doing that by establishing uh, teams uh, different research teams that would focus on different components of the rebuilding period and uh, or the response and then the rebuilding period. And so we made we started making field trips down there um, in the late uh, fall of 2005 and then into the um, you know 2006 and made several trips. I was the principal investigator on that, but then we eventually would have teams, that were either in residence or making uh, very often trips there. And those scholars that were uh, tapped for that were Russ Sobel, um, who was then teaching at the uh, uh, University of West Virginia and now teaches at the Citadel. Uh, Emily Chamley Wright, who was then teaching at Beloit College, but now is the provost over at Washington College. And then San, Sanford Akita, who is, uh, um, teaches at uh, State University of New York at Purchase. And then underneath of them, we had other junior faculty um, and then graduate students. Um, and they, the teams were divided up into those who would focus on public sector issues or what we call the political and legal leg. And then those who would focus on the social and cultural uh, kind of ideas, civil society component. And then the third one was the uh, entrepreneurial or commercial society or, or market sector, uh, private sector responses. And so if you think about it, you have a public sector, a private sector, and then a civil society sector. And what we wanted to study was 
you know, in detail, each of the various different aspects, but then more important, the interaction between all three of those as you try to both assess why uh, the uh, society is having difficult coming back or why it is that it's succeeding coming back. And we wanted to sort of look at that question. And and uh, turns out that New Orleans was uh, quite a uh, an amazing place. Uh, tragic event made more tragic by a lot of follies um and but yet also a very uplifting story if you focus on certain aspects of it uh with regard to the resiliency of civil society and the interaction between commerce and civil society so that's a very unusual plan that you that you were uh planning to execute and did execute most economists would probably look for some aggregate data on uh, incomes or test scores in schools. They'd look across maybe neighborhoods or districts or parts of the city or parts of a state. Uh, but this three-legged approach, uh, which I'm, of course, a big fan of, and sent doing field work is yeah. very alien uh, to most economic research and uh, is much more what people would call sociology. Um, right. What did you? What were you thinking in in taking that approach? Why, why did you take that approach? Yeah. Well, there's it's a great question. I mean, uh, <clears throat> there's a sort of a a methodological aspects of this, an analytical aspect of it, and obviously then a practical public policy or political economy um, in the art of political economy sense of this. Um, I, I do think that. Um, you know, we economists, uh, you and I, were trained uh, to think in terms of thin models and very clean data. Um, and so we like to have, you know, uh, large data sets that we can run statistical analysis on and we get clean, you know, results based on sort of our very refined models. And, and um, you know, for some questions, it turns out that that's, you know, a very mm -hmm. successful research strategy. At least it's proven to be one that is self-perpetuating. But in my own experience in studying the former Soviet Union, so I started my career studying uh, the Soviet Union. It wasn't former then. <laughs> and uh, and, um, and I, my, my first works were on the origins of the Soviet system and then um, on how that system operated. Given the problems that we would associate from an economic point of view with the incentive structure and the informational constraints that Soviet type planning system would operate under, how could that system ever operate? So there's kind of two ways to pursue that kind of research. One way was what you were suggesting, which was take the growth figures, re-estimate them, taking into account that the Soviet system was going to bias them in certain directions, and then try to, you know, come up with other growth estimates of what was going on in the Soviet Union. Um, and that is what a lot of people did in economics. Uh, but another aspect of it was is that that didn't really kind of capture what was going on over there. And so the idea was is that you had to sort of delve underneath, you know, dig deeper and get to like the real social interactions that were taking place to see how the failure in the plan system would generate, you know, cons you know, markets and black markets, both in producer goods and in consumer goods. 
Um, so there was also a you know kind of an informal market that interacted to allow the plan system to for the state enterprises to try to even pretend to meet their state you know their their output targets. But then there was also this vast black market activity, which is how consumer frustrations in a shortage economy get alleviated to some extent, not that they ever got really alleviated. Um, I mean, you didn't have an alternative supply network in that system, right? So it wasn't like goods were sneaking in from the West to get in there, except when you had limited tourists, right? So then you could sell them your Levi jeans or whatever. But um, but it wasn't like an open market, an easy supply network, so everything. So how do you understand how the Soviet system ticked? Uh, you know, just to give you one example, there's a study that was done in the late 1970s that estimated the, uh, the amount of black market dealings for gasoline in Moscow. And they put that figure at like 80% of the transactions of gasoline were bought in non-official markets. You know, in in some sense, so it's under the table, under the table or side payments to give, be able to, <laughs> you know, get it, right. even, you know, and all kinds of different things. So, you know, the, the Soviet Union, it's not just like I oftentimes, you know, say, like, imagine the market for illicit drugs in the United States, then make it writ large for the entire economy. That explains how the Soviet economy operate. That's actually kind of more uh, pedagogical than real, because what happened is the Soviet markets had various different gradations uh, in the official market, you know, so I, I'm like a bribe. All, yeah, like a bribe to a, an outright black market dealing, you know, where a state shortage of buns and a state shortage of sausage leads to a sandwich out the back window. You know, that's not the same thing as someone saying, oh, admissions to college. Yes, but it will cost you, you know, X number of dollars. That's more like the key fee in uh or be in a rent-controlled apartment kind of idea. Anyway, so if you're going to study that stuff, you can only study that because the official view is not clean and easy to get. And so instead, you have to do field work and you have to make access or use unusual data sources like memoirs and, uh, you know, kind of more ethnographic data to be able to actually get access to the information that enables you to study how this economic system operates. And then when the system started to collapse, it wasn't the textbook model that was collapsing. It was actually this, you know, Rube Goldberg kind of system that was, you know, in place that you were trying to then understand and what the property rights were of that and everything. But Joram Barzell is fantastic on this, actually. He says, you know, one of the only great achievements that the Soviet uh, bureaucracy achieved was to convince you uh, that while they own the resources that they didn't own them, right? So that they were owned by all the people, but actually it was owned by these, you know, various different people in the party and whatnot. They just had, they had control rights, but not cash flow rights. So but now how do I, how am I going to change those property rights systems? And, and more importantly for your question, how do I go about studying it? And I'll just be very brief here. It says you can't just rely on studying the official system. You have to open up to study the unofficial system, which means you have to, you know, get on the ground and get access to data, which is very dirty. But I think it's more than that. And I I, I feel presumptuous telling you that. So let, but let me take a crack no, at it. Yeah. Let me take a crack at it. I think um, as economists, when we say things like, oh, the market will solve that or the market won't solve that, uh we have in mind sort of a black box of what markets are. If we can draw it, 
we can draw a, a supply and demand diagram. Uh, we can draw a supply and demand diagram with intervention that keeps it from reaching its its uh, where the curves cross. And we sometimes fool ourselves into thinking that's what's happening. <laughs> right. But that's just a very stylized way of conveying some very simple things. That they're very important. I don't want to understate sure. that their importance. Uh, it, they're, it's extremely important just to focus on those basics, like what things are going to cost and whether they'll be waiting in line and, and whether there'll be a gap between what consumers pay and, and what suppliers receive because of a tax or because of waiting. So that's all very important. But it's not what's going on in, in the street. And we usually say, well, but that's not so important. We're, we're abstracting right. from that. That's the black box effect. What I think about when I think about the Soviet Union's uh, collapse and then the so-called aftermath, recovery, whatever you want to call it, that's somewhat analogous to Katrina, is that a lot of economists use that black box. And the reason I said I feel presumptuous, I learned this from you. So I'm going to say this, <laughs> and then you can chime in and say, I got it yeah. right, or I'm missing yeah. something. But what, what I think I've learned from you and some other Econ Talk episodes is that a lot of economists had a very stylized story about the recovery. Oh, what's well, easy? We'll just put in property rights and we'll sell off these state resources yeah. and um, markets will emerge and da 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 da. And it didn't happen. Right. And, and when you confront people with that, most of them don't. To be honest, I think most economists don't even want to think about it. Right. And what I respect in in your work, especially, is that you said this is a learning opportunity instead of saying, "Well." You know, I'm going to wave my hands, and it, it wasn't quite like the models say, but it's fine. And because we know markets, you know, we know what prosperity is is based on. It's based on rule of law, property rights, and and markets. And so we just have to get there. And but yeah. it, it turned out that getting there was the most interesting part, and that it wasn't easy to get there, and that these pieces didn't all emerge quickly. And so what I see your work and your methodological approach is doing is saying, look, there's real value here in trying to understand how these pieces, in particular, government, entrepreneurship, commerce, and civil society, that is nonprofits and other voluntary uh, activity, how they interact. Because if we just wave our hands and draw something on the blackboard and then run some regressions, we're going to miss – Learning right. what we should be learning. Is that a good way yeah. to? No, I mean, that's, been, that's a better summary than I can ever give. I, I think that the, uh, you know, our first, if you go back to this post-Soviet context, let's say we start with Eastern Central Europe in 89 and then look at in Russia in 1991. The first thing you think about is, oh, these were shortage economies. Uh, we know how to fix a shortage economy. You let prices let the prices float. adjust. Yeah, let the price adjust. So our first and foremost period of reform was get the prices right, and then you know that that like didn't go as smoothly as we hoped because we had to realize that uh, prices are formed within an institutional context, and so you needed to have you know various different institutions in place, and then that became in vogue to then say get the institutions right. So we move from getting the prices right to getting the institutions right to then, you know, oh, well, geez, institutional transplantation is really difficult. Um, you need to have certain value systems and beliefs culture. and mental culture. And so then it's like get the culture right. And but then it's I, like good yeah, luck. <laughs> yeah. But I do think it's important to keep in mind, you know, the 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 um, 
the fact that it's still the case you got to get the prices right. So even though it's so intractable, the culture issue, and you have to then for the pure positive economics of it, have to at least take into account that part, you also have to recognize, yes, it's true that culture is this framework within which institutions are, and institutions sort of define or frame within which how markets operate. And in these transition or crisis situations, it's the framework that's up for grabs, right? It's the thing that's fraying and whatnot. Um, you know, I, 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 you know, one of my favorite econ talks of all time for you, because um, it's uh, actually been uh, now saved for all of us to hear, um, is Milton Friedman. The fact that you did Milton Friedman early on in your process um, and before he obviously before he passed away. So now yeah. we have it, you know, and it's there. And there's a fantastic one with him, you know, about monetary policy that you did and sort of things. But Friedman was famous in 1979 when he first toured China. And they said to him, you know, uh, Milton, how would you fix things? And he said, privatize, privatize, privatize. And then, you know, just a few months before he passed away, someone asked him, uh, Professor Friedman, you know, would you change your dictum at all? He says, yes, I would. He said, what would it be? He said, privatize, 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 provided there's a rule of law. <laughs> and, you know, and that provided there's a rule of law becomes a, a rather big issue because where do those institutions come from? How do they get formed? Uh, how can we study them as economists rather than just treating them as given? And Raghu Rajan, um, you know, wrote a famous paper for the IMF when uh, in the mid uh, 2000s, beginning part of the 2000s, when development questions were on the, uh, especially a lot of these reconstructions of these failed and weak states um, after 9-11, you know, the, the sort of big discussion of all of that. And uh, he came, wrote an essay called um, uh, Assume Anarchy. And the argument was, is that you had to assume anarchy because you can't treat the institutions as fixed and given. You have to study how it is these institutions come about. And that became a real impetus of what we were trying to do in our transition studies, which morphed out of Eastern Central Europe to then Africa and Latin America and, and, and even the East Asia and whatnot. Um, and then that became the impetus of what we thought we might do with Katrina. So, so yeah. you know, if I can just put on my sociology hat for a minute, and I don't have one, so you'll just <laughs> have to imagine it. But but I think one way to to talk about what Friedman was saying is that, you know, when you say rule of law, that's just, that's not something you just say, do you have it or not? It's not an on-off switch. Right. There are many things in the United States, depending what city you live in, depending what county you're in, depending who's running the government this month, this year, uh, how free you are to use your property as you see fit. And I think uh, understanding that is part of what uh, we're talking about here. So let's move on to Katrina. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the bottom line is, is that you tried to do a much richer, uh, wider breadth look at the right. process of recovery rather than just saying, well, how much did uh, GDP go up this quarter in, in right. the city of Louisiana, of New Orleans? What, what happened and, to sales tax revenue? Right. And we wanted um, to see the interaction between these various different ideas, mainly to see how. So, again, you know, we take a lot of always these little inspirations from different people. So John Stuart Mill has a great quote in The Principles of Political Economy where he says that one of the most amazing things that we see in human history is the great rapidity with which countries bounce back from famine, war, earthquakes, fires, whatnot, right? Yep. And so we took that 
that idea. And then we wanted to say, okay, so what are the conditions under, you know, which Mill's proposition is true? What are the conditions under which it would fall away? So one of the conditions that Mill says explicitly is complete depopulation. So, you know, if, if you came in and, and, you know, something happened, an asteroid hit and it wiped out a small asteroid hit. So it, it wiped out like a whole country or whatever. Yeah. Country's not going to come back tomorrow. Right. Um, and so that, that we understood that, but somewhere in between that and, um, the you electricity know, goes off for a week. Like, yeah. yeah. For, you know, we, we wanted to see how they form. In fact, one of the really sort of made me sit up in my seat and realize how, um, you know, sensitive these issues are is in one of our early trips, we went and met with a gentleman who was one of the leading you know, business people in New Orleans. He took us to the top of his uh, office building and it still was the case when we looked out from underneath that, that I think uh, it was something like, um, you know, three fifths of the city footprint was still, the infrastructure was wiped out because, you know, the, the water had stayed there and then that wiped out like their, you know, electric grid and all that. And he sat there and, and we were talking about what we were trying to do. And he turned to me and he said, uh, he said, look, he goes, I understand you guys are very excited because not every time that you can fill the rat maze with water and then see what the rats do. And like, a I lovely, up, what a lovely and, thought. <laughs> and I sat and I sat up and I said like, no, 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 you know, but in some sense that is what we were doing. But like, it made me realize that we're talking about real people, their real lives, and we need to be very sensitive to the way that we think about, you know, this, because you know, that's different if I was studying the rats, right? I mean, that, right. I wouldn't worry so much about the, the, but these were real people and they were really affected. So you had to always balance that because we are who we study. And, you know, what we were trying to do was we were right in the midst of a lot of this when the, the nerves were still very raw. So what are some of the, tell us what some of the lessons that you've taken from that, from well, the work. We talk, you know, when we talked in December of 2006, I went back and, as I said, I listened to it. And one of the things that I always like to stress when we start um, uh, doing this is, uh, first, at the moment of the crisis, how people that were on the ground there, mainly in this instance, the churches and church leaders played such an important role in getting people out of harm's way. And that isn't recognized enough because we always think of that as being the role of government to do. Um, but it's phenomenal what the network of Southern Baptist churches did and also what the network of, you know, boating clubs did where they came in and, uh, you know, little skipper boats and got people out and got, you know, uh, got people into safety that otherwise would have been stranded. And even in, in some of these instances, like with the church, they actually were violating the official rules, which said that, you know, people weren't supposed to be going in and out of the city like that because um, they were trying to control the evacuation or control the, um, you know, centrally control how they were going to do uh, the protection in the wake of the storm. And um, and these were very, very courageous young people. Uh, this the one couple that we met was a youth ministry couple in, in Central City, New Orleans, and they just really just responded. It was like your neighbors, you know, at this time, we're going to sort of help. And obviously we hear the tragic stories of, you know, people being trapped in the Ninth Ward or, or wherever. 
and then at the Superdome. And, you know, those are the images that we have in our head. And those were very tragic uh, aspects. Real. Yeah. And real. I'm not, no one's denying that. But it is pretty phenomenal the amount of effort that civil society expended and the resiliency they showed in the face of very difficult times. And I think we should celebrate that more, the, the human capacity for compassion and just getting the job done is a lot greater than we often think. Yeah, we talked with, with Paul Robinson uh, recently about in life or death situations, a cooperative urge somehow can often spring into action and people can take risks uh, for their own safety and, and do great things for uh, their for their neighbors. Um, so that's that's the first thing that comes to my mind. And I really want to stress that. And that even comes back to the so that's in the immediate response. But you also see varieties of this uh, sort of strength and resiliency of civil society throughout the process from response to recovery to rebuilding to today getting on with your life. And it's not perfect, and there's still a lot of lingering difficulties, uh, but there also are some real, you know, heroic examples. Uh, and I think that, you know, we should pay more attention to that. Robert Putnam kind of made the argument that we, you know, right before all of this happened in the 90s, um, that we were, in fact, becoming more atomistic, less connected to our neighbors. This is bowling um, alone, right? Yeah, bowling alone kind of idea. And I think that he just misidentified where people were finding their new forms of civil society and that civil society isn't dead in America. Um, it hasn't been completely crowded out, though I think it, it's not as vibrant as we could, could tap into it. But when pressured, it can actually respond quite, quite well. And I think that that's one of the lessons that we learned from Katrina. What about uh, – talk about what happened in the education sphere to schooling. Well, one of the things that you should understand right up front is that, you know, New Orleans had some of the worst schools, if not the worst schools in the country prior. And, uh, and so, you know, you have to ask this question. There's a variety of ways in which Katrina studies have gone in and, and looked at uh, what's gone on with charter school movements and, and whatnot afterwards. And so – Because a lot of schools – Maybe will you tell me the public school system was was gone for a while, right? Or is it what was the status? Well, I mean, okay. So very the one of the really great stories is um, in the uh, Saint Bernard Parish. Uh, this woman who was the superintendent of schools in that parish, uh, Doris Vautier, she understood that in order to get the workers back, uh, you would need to have your schools up and running. And so because it's a coordination problem, I'll come back if you come back. Right. Yep. But I'm not going to come back if you don't come back. And so they needed to have all of that so, like normalcy of life back for the workers to return uh, back and sort of build their lives back up again, return to their homes, rebuild their homes, all that stuff. Um, and again, you know, the incentives get a little goofy here because FEMA had extended their payments for not working for a longer period of time, people move to Houston. Uh, they look around and they're like, Hey, Houston ain't half bad <laughs> compared to going where I was living in New right. Orleans. A lot of people didn't go back. A lot of people did not go back. Um, but what, what she did and she uh, is, is a kind of, um, so they did a mix between 
the, the her private effort or her, you know, efforts as well as in the public schools. So it's kind of, it's not like they were independent schools. She's a public employee, right? Working within the public school system, but she's acting very independently to help, you know, get people going there. Does that make sense? Yeah. So what did she do? Yeah. Well, in her case, what she did was she opened the school much faster than they thought they were going to do. You know, various different officials, FEMA and whatnot, said, you know, you'll be able to reopen your school in, let's say, 18 months. And she was able to open the school in like eight months. And, you know, of course, you can even see like there's an HBO special on one of the independent schools because they went to the state finals in basketball or whatever, you know, the next year in which it was a conglomeration of a bunch of different public schools and they put them into a school and they ended up by having a, a decent team and helped rebuild back the, you know, the community and, and build things. With Doris Vautier, what she did was she got the FEMA trailers and she was able to use, you know, them and when they didn't send them to her fast enough, she would go and act very entrepreneurial and get them from some you know, other place that had FEMA trailers. And, you know, then <laughs> later on, they complained to her that she was misusing funds, you know, because she wasn't, she was just like a real bulldog, right, to make sure that she could get her school district set up. Uh, one of the trailers uh, didn't have the right dimensions. So it was determined that it couldn't be used for school use, but it was just sitting there vacant, like on the lot. But her teachers were back and they didn't have a laundromat. So she turned this trailer into a laundromat. The original FEMA official that was on the ground said, okay, go ahead and do it. But then they cycled him out. And then this new bureaucrat came in, you know, who's got his, his, uh, you know, uh, pencil and his, uh, you know, uh, pad of paper. And he's like, this trailer is not supposed to be used for that. You're violating the law. And she's like, you know, Hey buddy, I don't have time for this now. Right. And they were actually going to try to bring her up on charges or whatever. Um, and so she's very publicly entrepreneurial, but it's kind of this mix. Then you also have private schools like the Catholic schools, you know, which, uh, you know, trying to get their communities back and how they opened up as well uh, very soon after. Um, and to try to, again, schools understood that in order to get the people back, they had to have a place for the kids to go back. And so it became a very big part of the community. So, so I, asked, I think that part of the story is is a is a kind of a uh, a significant part. And then now there's been this discussion of what's happened with the various different charter schools um, and their um, you know results. And I I think that I don't um, I don't really have that on the top of my head to to. Well, it like doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because you know one of the most obvious problems with those kind of analyses are that. It's not the same people because um, a lot of people left and the people who left and didn't come back are not the same people as the people who decided to stay. And so yeah. I'm not sure how to interpret those results, but uh, which I'm sure doesn't stop it. a lot of people from arguing about them. But let's put well, that. You know, there's a lot of questions there about the density of the population yeah. and where you build. And, you know, yeah, so it becomes, you know, to go back to originally when we first saw it, one of the things that we wanted to try to do is maybe do a comparative study between Biloxi and New Orleans, similar like you might do a study between Poland and and the Czech Republic in the post-communist period, right? And we gave up on that idea very quickly because the conditions were so different in the initial start state from the simple reason of the effect of the storm. Uh, you know, whereas in one area, the storm came in and went out and another where the storm came in and it sat, 
Yeah. And that changes a lot of the yeah. dynamics of what goes on. And so, you know, we, we, but originally that was our idea. We were going to try to do this comparative study between how Biloxi bounced back versus how New Orleans bounced back. What could we learn from this comparison? But we gave up on that idea within, you know, like three weeks of, of originally studying. And I think that's a similar kind of thing what you were just talking about with schools, because it's not the same thing. You know, apples, you're not comparing apples yeah. and apples. Yeah. So I interrupted you to ask you about schools. Let's go back to the more general question. I asked you what you'd learned. What are the most important things you learned? One of the things you said was the, the role of the churches. What else, what else is uh, an important takeaway for you? Uh, well, okay. So um, also the role that entrepreneurship and, and, uh, and, and commercial life plays um, in, uh, in res- not only supplying initial responses, but bringing a normalcy back to life. Um, that if you can't have uh, a commercial life, you're not going to rebuild. Um, those things go hand in hand together. Um, and so the importance of not only small mom and pop shops getting started, you know, restaurants and whatnot, but also the big box stores, you know, how Walmart played a role in all of this Home Depot, uh, large, uh, you know, pharmaceutical, uh, you know, drug uh, stores like uh, CVS and, and Rite, uh, uh, Rite Aid, I think, right? Um, and, you know, how they um, are very much a part of your communal life. They make living so, happen. <laughs> so let me take this, let me take this in a, a obvious and, and very different direction. Um, when I interviewed uh, Nina Monk about the Millennium Villages Project, yeah, her sort of bottom line assessment. The way I, I mean, the reason that was a to me such a memorable conversation is that it was her summary, which was uh, two words: nothing grew. Yeah. Yes, there was some injection of cash and well being and 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 some activity, but when it receded, when when the when the injections stopped, what was left? And again, this came up indirectly in my conversation with William McCaskill. Uh, I love the idea of giving people money uh, rather than trying to figure out how to, you know, what what they need. Let them figure that out. But how often is it that what I worry about then is you give the money, does anything grow? Is it is it just yeah. an, a one-time effect and that you have to continue to do or does it jumpstart something? And if you look at the cities of America, the really bad parts of the worst cities of America – the biggest problem they have is there's nothing growing, meaning there isn't right. that commercial vibrancy. You know, there might be one restaurant on a in a four or six block uh, stretch of abandoned stuff, of of deserted buildings, of uh, housing, but but no commercial life. You know, it's a big deal when they somehow work out a, a special arrangement to get a grocery, right? Uh, especially if it's a chain. You know, the people will say, "Oh, this chain's." You know, they don't go into the uh, minority neighborhoods. That's they're racist. And for whatever reason, they don't go in, but they're not there. Uh, And I find when I think about development, whether it's in Africa or in a American city that's not been hit by a hurricane or in the aftermath of a hurricane, coming back to our early conversation, I don't think we have a very good understanding of how to make stuff grow. Of how that process, what are the real requirements for that to get started? Yeah, I think that uh, 
So um, if you look at, say, for example, where the, um, you know, the area of Baltimore where the riots broke out, I mean, obviously there's a, a huge, you know, problem there of, of uh, public distrust about the police and whatnot. But it's also the case that the particular area where the riots broke out is a very, very bad section of Baltimore in which there is no work uh, right. I mean, the, the the unemployment among the young young men in that area is extremely. Yep. And so we have to start. The schools, thinking of, I bet the schools aren't very good either. Yeah, I bet you we have to we have to really as economists, we really have to take seriously this idea of what happens to these communities when work disappears. And, you know, there's a very sort of, you know, I love Casey Mulligan's book on the redistribution recession, because if you can boil it down to a very simple point, he says, look, through public policies, we've made it be, uh, uh, you know, very high cost to hire people and very low cost to be unemployed. So don't be surprised when the gap grows about the unemployment. I mean, Mulligan does really nice economic analysis and summarizes this in a really good way. And so I like that. But it's really getting at a point of an earlier theme of work, which was done by, you know, Walter Williams and Thomas Sowell, but also captured in this sociologist, William Julius Wilson, which is what happens when work disappears, when, you know, because of a variety of circumstances, policies are adopted, which actually cut the bottom of the economic ladder off for people. They can't climb up the economic ladder. That that is a tragedy that we need to address in this country. And in Katrina, one of the things that one of the other lessons was that initial conditions really, really matter for how resilient you can be. So if your society or your area is one of the worst places in the country to do business and then you shock it and you don't do any changes in your policy space, it's not going to be an easy recovery because it's just the reason why you were so bad at doing business before didn't have to do with race or uh, you know anything like that. It had to do with rules of the game, which prevent people to realize productive specialization and peaceful uh, you know social cooperation through exchange. And New Orleans, for you know Louisiana as a whole, and New Orleans in particular, has been a, a, a section of our country which is very, very bad sets of rules of the economic game. It's a connection-based society, not a contract-based society. So that's why you have all the corruption um, and whatnot that's in there. You have uh, regulations which are um, extremely onerous for anyone to try to come up with a, a new innovation. So you don't see much new innovation. And now you shock it and lo and behold, you know, people don't come up with, you know, new ideas about how to, to make use of the resources there. And so that was a really stark lesson. So initial conditions matter a lot. And unless you're willing to move off of those initial rules, say, relax those rules, uh, you're not going to have the kind of commercial vibrancy that you would expect to see in a real uh, growing and, 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 and thriving, you know, metropolis. So, so here's, let, let me challenge that point or try to get you to make it a little more subtle. Cause I think it's a really important point, but I think it's really easy to see it as a dogmatic point. And I don't think, I don't think you see it that way. I don't see it that way. Yeah. Um, so let's take it, let's take a, we're talking on September 11th, 2015. Right. So if we think about nine 11, September 11th, 2001, when we think about what happened to New York City, well, it bounced back incredibly well. Of course, the space 
that was literally physically destroyed has been a long dragged out process because of the nature of politics and the nature of real estate in New York and in a different set of rules of the game. I think there'd have been a building back up there in six months during right. a year. So, but that, that's just one square block or three square, four, whatever, six square blocks. At the same time, there's unbelievable stuff going on in New York City. Uh, you have the Hudson Yards redevelopment plan. That this is unbelievably ambitious entrepreneurial uh, explosion. And New York's full of rules and regulations. It's an incredibly unpleasant place, I assume, overall to do business. But there's a group of people who figured out how to play by the rules of the game. Uh, some of them, um, I won't mention who some of them are, but you can imagine. Mm-hmm. But they figured out the rules of the game. They're not the rules you and I would pick. They're not really great rules for encouraging commerce, but in exchange and social interaction and specialization. But they figured out, people have figured out how to deal with them. And yet, you go to New Orleans, and it doesn't work at all in certain parts. Is that because the rules are really bad, much worse than in New York? Because the point I'm trying to make here is that it's easy to make this sound like it's just an anti-government screed. You know, mm-hmm. the government has a bunch of bad policies, and of course, it didn't bounce back like John Stuart Mill or you and I would think. But I think it's a subtler point. I think it has to do with this, the three legs of the stool and how culture and civil society, and the public sector interact. And in many places, you and I don't like the rules, but it works fine. Yeah, Like Adam Smith says, there's a lot of ruin in a nation. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it seems you know people find ways to, to be productive. But in other yeah. places, they don't. And I wondered if you have any thoughts on why, in this particular case, some of the things just didn't get overcome. Well, there's a there's a, you're exactly right. I mean, it, there's a... Uh, a lot of moving parts in the story down there. I, w- I was going to invoke Adam Smith uh, for you as well, uh, which is uh, prior to the ruin in the nation. He also has a line where he says that the uh, basically the power of economic interest is so strong they can overcome a hundred impertinent obstructions which human folly can thrust in its way. Uh-huh. And <laughs> I've always thought that that's brilliant that Smith says that, but the question is then he and then it's a, a gradation, right? A hundred impertinent obstructions, but how about a thousand? Yeah. You know, how about two thousand? Um, and I and I do think that uh, while it's true that New York is a highly highly regulated New York, New Jersey, the tax rates are ridiculous uh, and whatnot. Um, it is the case that New Orleans was rated as the worst place to do business in the United States prior to the. Um, this, but I, I also think that the the uh, there's other aspects. I mean, New York is able to put up with a lot of uh, ruin, as you might put it, because the um, sort of rates of return are so high. Yeah, it's a big. That, there's a big. There's a big concentration of folks uh, to sell to. <laughs> yeah, and so there's there's an attraction there of that. Yeah. So I think basically on New Orleans, what I would like to you know, so I agree with you that that you know we need to be very subtle and not present this as like markets good, governments you know bad. Uh, you know, Jeff Sachs when he was here in his conversations with Tyler had this uh, very funny line. I'm not a always a, a complete fan of what uh, Jeff is saying, as you might imagine. But he had a funny line he was talking about. He said his wife is a pediatrician, and when she gets on the phone and someone calls. She doesn't just say 
property rights and then hangs up the phone, right? Uh, she does – Vaccine, you know, yeah, or yeah, yeah. She, medicine. Yeah she, yeah, she does diagnostic and then prescription, blah, 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 you know, his kind of thing. And so I understand where he was going with it. And I don't want to be the type of economist that just says, you know, property rights, prices and profit and loss and let's get on with it. But at some level, I also don't want to lose emphasis of that point. I, I like to say to our colleague, Tyler Cowan, that, you know, uh, simple economics is not necessarily simple minded. Yeah, <laughs> you know, for sure. People think a lot of times that you have to get really complicated about these ideas. But I think there's low hanging fruit in public policy, especially well, and in, New, in New Orleans. They had things like in the in the in, in, right after the, uh, the the hurricane, they did not allow people that were uh, of tradesmen like electricians and plumbers and whatnot from other states to be recognized for their occupational license in Louisiana. They had waiting periods and restrictions. So, of course, when people migrated the flow of labor in there, they were menial laborers who were able to move debris, but not to rebuild your house. And since there was this huge outflow of population, one of the things you need to build is tradesmen again, and the state never relaxed. Now, compare that to Hurricane Andrew in Florida, uh, where they actually reduced occupational licensing, right? And then all of a sudden, you know, that meaning if I'm from New Jersey, I'm an electrician, I can be an electrician in Florida. You know, and all of a sudden, you know, rebuilding after Andrew takes off, and here it, it, it doesn't. And the other thing that was really uh, problematic was that there was this going back and forth and political football, similar to what you were talking about with the site of the Trade Center, where it just became an, a, a project of political football with people, right? In in New Orleans, what became the political, uh, you know, uh, football and a lot of this stuff was the where we're going to redraw the floodplains. And so the public officials and the uh, Army Corps of Engineers and whatnot, and they, they they delayed and delayed and delayed. And, of course, that has huge impact on whether or not I choose to rebuild or not rebuild. And where, because, yeah. And, 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 yeah, and what I'm going to do with my home, right, and all this. And in the meantime, you have sitting water, which calls mold, which is worse than if the water came in and went right back out. And, you know, and so it became sort of a comedy of errors that really could have been avoided well, you mentioned you mentioned yeah. follies, so those yeah. are two. Do you have any other one or two that would that stood out? Mistakes that were made that that they might have done differently that might have well, helped. A lot of it is just basic incentives, you know. Like uh, originally, uh, there was money to sent to New Orleans to shore up the levees or allocated towards doing the levees uh, before the storm. And then, you know, they just decided for political reasons that that money could be used elsewhere, you know? And so it, it, it technically wasn't a violation of anything, but it's just normal policy. Bad decision. It turned Bad out. Decision. Ex, po ex post course, anyway. You know, of course people sometimes, you know, part of our, our studies, uh, that was led by Russ Sobel and Pete Leeson, uh, they really focused a lot on the corruption aspects of all of this. Basically, that what FEMA does is create kind of a rent race. And so, you know, um, you know, FEMA allocates low and behold. Before you, minute, before you go on, a rent race, meaning rent in the economic sense of the term, meaning a chance to win a prize. Yeah. Not not related to apartments. 
necessarily right. yeah, yeah. Sorry, the economic yeah, term yeah. rent just for so, our listeners. And that creates then, you know, an opportunity for those on the ground to like do all the things to try to get that those rents from FEMA. And and uh, and so FEMA allocates based on politics, as you might imagine, it's a political entity. And so Russ, you know, had written several papers on this prior to Katrina. So when Katrina happened, we entrusted Russ with our public and legal sector team. And, you know, he he and Pete Leeson, they wrote papers. They have a paper in the Journal of Law and Economics called Weathering Corruption, which sort of, you know, looks at this issue. Um, but they had, um, you know, a few other papers, one on uh, knowledge problems that are associated with uh, FEMA directions. Um, but they also studied electoral politics and corruption issues. And of course, they predicted that, you know, various different aspects of the political system to concentrate benefits and disperse costs. And, you know, of course, Mayor Nagan is now, you know, in, in you know, jail, <laughs> right, uh, with corruption charges. Uh, you know, no one in this in the public officials comes off um, all that clean or whatever. But at the same time, they also it's for people like you and I who've been schooled in economics. None of it surprises us either because it's just following basic incentives. So again, I would stress one of the important lessons, even from when we're on the ground and we're learning, is to see how the structure of incentives so impacts the direction of behaviors. And so if you want to change uh, these outcomes, you need to change the rules of the game, not necessarily change the players, because the players are all going to play the game faced into the incentives that they face. And so what we really have to focus on is those rules of the game. So um, let me challenge you. Um, I'm going to stretch you a little bit here, Pete. So uh, it was an interesting piece. I think I want to say it was in the New Yorker. Catherine Schultz wrote it. I hope I got that right. Um, if I got it wrong, I'll edit it out. But uh, it was about the fact that the really, really big earthquake that might be coming is going to hit Seattle, Washington. Right. It's a very provocative, interesting piece. And of course, it's a black swan. I mean, nobody, or I guess it's, I don't know if it's literally a black swan, but it's, by that I mean, probably not going to hit tomorrow. Probably yeah. not going to hit next year. Right. Uh, but it almost certainly will hit the next 100 years, uh, let's say, right. or 200, whatever the number is. Might be 50, might be 20. Um, and I, I hire you. I'm the mayor of Seattle, and I hire Pete Betke, and I say, Pete, you've studied New Orleans. If, God forbid, Seattle gets hit with a catastrophic experience like this, uh, what do I want to be ready for? What do I need to do? What are the lessons that you took from their aftermath? What are the mistakes I want to avoid? And what do I want to do that they forgot to do? Okay. At, at the, at, yeah. now, of course, some of this <laughs> – go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you my, my snarky economist – Response, which is to get the prices right. No. And get, no, no, I'm gonna, it's actually it's to invoke one of your teachers. So, in one of my favorite books in economics is by uh, George Stigler. It's called um, the uh, the Memoirs of an Unregulated Economist. Yep. And he tells a fantastic story in there of during World War II, Talon Koopmans wrote him a outrageous letter saying, "George, George, I'm very upset." I've been told that you argued that in the case of a bombing of New York City, we should use the price system to evacuate and reallocate resources. 
And Stigler writes back calmly. He tells a story. He says he writes back calmly. He says, dear Tollings, no, I did not write such a proposal. But on second thought, and then he goes through and explains how the market would be the most responsive and resilient. But he does make the point before he starts that by saying, in the case of a bombing, recognize that all rationing systems will be chaotic. So in comparison to all the other chaotic systems, the price system will actually do better than all the other ones. So I actually think one of the – so now let me move off of yeah, that. Yeah, go ahead. Real – the real position, which is, but I, I think Stigler's, that passage in Stigler, we should all think about, you know, as a thought experiment and think about it seriously, because it's always as compared to what, right? Yep. Um, and a lot of times we think the as compared to would be, you know, the way that we would do it if everyone followed in the right way and all the efforts were you know, everyone trusted the public officials, the, tr the public officials were trustworthy and everyone do it the right way. And you know, we have to always do the compared to what. But what I would stress is uh, first and foremost that the proposition that's most key to Mill is the idea of the free mobility of capital and labor. And so I would love to see restrictions on capital and labor relaxed in the immediate aftermath of a horrific event. Give me an example. So like what I was saying before about occupational licensing, right, or any kind of regulations that would make it undesirable for people, including foreigners, to want to invest in your area. Um, so, you know, New Orleans could be not quite New York, but could be like New York because it could be a gateway uh, into the United States from Latin America for a lot of business and commerce. In fact, it already is to some extent, right? But it could be even more if it wasn't such a regulated and, and restricted environment. It could be more like Miami. Right. Unless or, like uh, or, the south side of Chicago, say. <laughs> or it could be like Hong Kong. Yeah. You know, everyone can be like Hong Kong in that sense. Well, Just, hang on. I got to stop okay. you there, Pete. Okay. I got to stop you there because I want to I want to come back to our opening conversation about that it's not just these simple things. Right. And you're you just I think just committed. You just slipped into the <laughs> you know, if they just got rid of these rules, they'd be like Hong Kong. Do you do you really believe that? I mean I'm I'm not I, I do, I'm I, open I, to the possibility. I like the idea of it. I yeah. just don't know if I believe it anymore. I, I believe it, but I don't believe that they'll get rid of the rules. <laughs> so so and that's part of the culture issue too. Yeah. Right? So it's it's kind of like um, ideas. So I have a very simplistic kind of linear model in my head. A lot of times ideas generate institutions or legitimate institutions, institutions, structure incentives and control the flow of information and the knowledge feedbacks. And that generates economic performance. Now that say that again. I love so that. Say it again. Ideas legitimate institutions. Okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to annotate it. So when you say ideas, legitimate institutions, you're talking about the fact that we might have some cultural beliefs. We might have some things that we perceive as principles. That's what you mean, right? Right. Okay. And so think about it this way. Like, um, if, if I had, if I didn't believe something about private property, then if someone had private property, I would violate the private property all the time unless they had a policeman all the time looking over us. Correct. But if I believe that private property is sacrosanct, right? Yep. 
even if no policeman is looking at me, I might not violate another's proper pro- property right. Yep. And so I think it lowers the cost of enforcement yep. of the institution. So ideas uh, and then these institutions, why they're important is because they structure the incentives that we face and they control, uh, they, they generate a flow of information and the various feedbacks of knowledge that we need to learn. And then that generates our economic performance. But now, once I have that linear line, then we have to recognize that what does it mean to live like a, a like what does well-being mean? Well-being means more than GDP, right? We don't eat GDP rates. Yep. So well-being, then what does flourishing mean? And, yep. and, and those ideas about that, they feed back into the ideas, <laughs> right? Yeah. And then that's going to influence what institutions are acceptable and, and so forth and so on. And so there's this giant feedback. I take a very linear, uh, you know, presentation. And the next thing you know, I got arrows going everywhere all over the place because it gets very complicated very quickly. And we're very fortunate because we live in a heritage uh, that comes from Europe and then transplanted into the United States which, um, you know, believed in, had a variety of things that justified Western liberalism, you know, justified, you know, market economies, private property, a contract, contractual based society. And that generated, you know, these economic benefits that we've all enjoyed over the last two, you know, two, 300 years. Right. Yeah. And, and so, you know, this is a huge blip in human history that we've been able to do this. Um, and so I think that those things matter and deep questions like you've asked about uh, when Adam Smith is asking us to think about our moral sentiments or Hayek is asking us to think about our moral intuitions and the moral demands. And so we have to, as economists, open up to this idea of where we get these, you know, where are these sentiments, what do these sentiments suggest to us, because they legitimate or delegitimate these institutions. So as an economist, a lot of times I'll just go institutions to performance but I always have to be reminded that those institutions don't get plucked out of thin air. They have these, uh, you know, intellectual support networks, which are in ideas, belief systems, some of which are not scientific support systems, but yeah. mythologies and, yeah, and superstitions sure. and stuff. Yeah, there are traditions, right. um, the, way so, you were, the way you were raised. And I just, you know, I think about when you mentioned Baltimore or you think about um, – any of the places you might think about around the world, uh, the poorest parts of the United States, the poorest parts of Latin America, the poorest parts of Africa, where there isn't a, an opportunity for people to flourish. And you say, well, what's wrong? And the answer is everything. Yeah, everything. <laughs> Everything's I, wrong. The I incentives that, are wrong. The culture yeah. is wrong. And we cherry pick. I'm just, I'm going way off the track here because I just, it's just no, it's okay. interesting yeah. to me. We cherry pick based on our, Ideology, philosophy, specialty. I think about Arnold Kling's Three Languages of Politics. So, you know, that he argues that people look at the world according to a certain axis. So if you're a conservative, you see the world as about savagery versus civilization. If you're a liberal, it's about oppressors versus the oppressed. If you're a libertarian, it's about freedom versus coercion. And I see myself all the time. You know, in, in those boxes, if I'm not careful, and and I think a thoughtful right. person needs to go go yeah. beyond that, and and it's so difficult because yeah. it's true, it's true that New Orleans doesn't have good rules, right? But as you said, 
there's a reason that it doesn't have good rules. <laughs> and, and it goes it goes a long way back. And, and it's you, hard. You might, have, you might even be able to say it's because it comes from, you know, it's its origins are not the same as the rest of the United States origin. Maybe. I don't right? know. I mean, going back to its legal system. Yeah, that Napoleon. It Maybe yeah. it's Napoleon's fault. It's, no, but I mean, it's it's, you know, this is the whole thing about the legacy of these various different institutions that exist, right? And and so I don't know how path dependence, how strong the path dependency is. I don't know if the footprint of history stays that long, but it seems like it does in some instances, right? I mean, yeah, no, it seems to. And yet at the same time, we want to say it should be, you know, if you think about like the Hong Kong, you know, Taiwan. Anything is possible. China, anything. It can flip over. And so I think one of the things that we learned in, in New Orleans, especially like in the book that uh, Emily Chamley Wright and Virgil Store and Nona Martin did, which is an oral history of how they came back. Uh, and this is the oral history really of the Ninth Ward and whatnot. Um, one of the things that you see there is you actually do see some, you know, very, it's based on these oral histories. So it's Ninth Ward and other areas of New Orleans. And they took a lot of structured interviews and they record them and then they brought it back. So it's people telling their own story. And you do see in that a, 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 a lot of character that is highly desirable, right? So it's not just a story of people that are, are you know, what, what do we, when we translate bad culture into economic terms, it usually means that they have a shorter term time horizon. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and so they don't care as much about the future. So that means they're going to act opportunistically on that. They don't have like a work ethic and blah, blah, blah. A bunch of different characteristics. You could. My list. favorite grit. They don't have enough grit. Yeah. yeah grit. Which is, well, it's, grit's important. It grit's is. really it important. Is. And and uh, going back to, uh, you know, one of your favorite players and and my favorite players, Tom Brady, you know, he has a he has a, uh, the the report card on what they expected him on draft day. It still hangs in his locker room and it says, you know, his legs are too skinny. You know, he can't he's not going to survive in the NFL, blah, 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 and all this stuff. And he still has it there because he has that grit that yeah. work ethic and to fight that. And I think, you know, we associate that. But one of the things that this story tells us, and I highly recommend all your readers to take some time to look at this because it's in their own words. Right. The oral Is histories, the oral history. You will hear a story of a people that. I really believe, and this is a belief, note I use the word even, right? I really believe that if the rules of the game were better, their behavior patterns would be more in conformity to the things we associate with advanced economic progress and all of that. But right now, the payoffs that they face, it's not like they're confronted with payoffs and then choosing the worst payoff of it, right? It's instead that the rules of the game are structured such that the best the best that they can do, given their situation, is to behave the way that they do, which is not conducive to advanced economic growth. And that, I mean, I know that that's too simplistic of a story, but that's kind of the no, that can be true. It's, it's kind, it kind of is like the the hanger, right? That you kind of put the the analytical dress on because. It's it, you got to look and see where these payoffs are going. And, the, and 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 right now, it's still the case. New Orleans hasn't adjusted itself, <laughs> you know, and become. And that's why one of the reasons why it's having 
uh, you know, its population has declined and, and the other kinds of things that are associated. So when we did the 10th anniversary, you know, HBO did it and CNN did it and everyone like that. Yeah, there's lots to celebrate. There's lots of civil society. There's lots of revivancy. You know, the, the 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 French Quarter is back. All of that, but the met- metropolis as a whole is not what people hoped it to be in the remaking of it. And a large part of that is because the that particular environment is still not as conducive to economic investment. And re in development in the way that one would hope it to be, and so that's what you know leads us to do that. So, you know, I mean, if I had this, you know, you asked me about you know lessons learned. I think one of the big lessons learned, of course, is you can't deal with anything but this interaction between the public, the private, and civil society, and that the groups who have negotiated that effectively those are the ones that actually experience high end economic growth. We don't live in a society yet where we've seen someone just have a private sector and civil society sector and no dysfunctional public sector and somehow, you know, survive. There's always the public sector at the moment. And, and the question is, how do you negotiate the relationships between that and the public and the, and the private sector and civil society? And I, and the catchphrase, which is due to my, colleague at Mercatus, Adam Tira, that I like is on the public private sector side, what we want to have is permissionless innovation. We want to be able to have people who seek not to uh, always have to get permission from public officers about how to come up with private solutions to these commercial problems or public problems. And so we need we need permissionless innovation. And what are the rules under which we find that? And that's where you're going to see vibrancy and when you have to ask for permission for everything, that's where you're going to see stagnation. So I'm going to, I'd like to make three comments. They're not related, but they just came to my mind and I I want to, I want to get them down here on paper. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, sure. And then I'll let you react and then we'll, we'll close because we're over time, but. Oh, okay. But that's okay with me if it's okay with you. I'm enjoying the conversation. Me too, very much. So let me just. um, And I like Arnold's. Like you said, I like Arnold's uh, characterizations too. Well, I didn't do justice to it. I don't. I don't know if listeners who haven't heard that figured out what I was saying. What I really was trying to say is that we cherry pick the data to confirm our already yeah. existing which, worldview, which, which is which pocket we sit in. Yeah. I, I uh, Pete Leeson and I just uh, I apologize, but Pete Leeson and I have a new book coming out. It's it's actually been published, but we haven't got our copies yet. It's an edited volume on the economic role of the state. And in the introduction to that, we call it uh, presumptions of political economy. And we go by and we look at like basically the the easiest way to put it is that people are optimistic or pessimistic about private predation or public predation. Yeah, that's true. And and so (laughs) they only uh, notice one of them, though. (laughs) That's the problem. And traditionally, economists that believe the state needs to have a major role they are pessimistic about the private, but very optimistic about the public. And we're the opposite. And, and other people <laughs> are the opposite. And so unless you sort of work through that, that's that's a way to sort of frame how it is people tell political economy arguments. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a good example. Why, and that's why I think Arnold's is very good, because the vision that people have about who they are and who their enemies are, quote unquote. Yeah. That's going to be we're the bad you know, guys. Yeah, that's going to be very influential on the way that they sort of frame their world around them. And see, 
that's how ideas then impact institutions. And those institutions, then we can get more technical in our economics about, you know, the marginal rates of substitution and the equal marginal principle and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And that gives us this, you know, outputs. But then once we get to outputs again, we're going to be like, well, is that what it means to have a flourishing human life? And, you know, those kind of questions. Yeah, that's right. So, so here, right, here's my, here are my closing things. Thoughts. Uh, first, um, contrary to some economists, I who we will not mention, but most economists understand that destruction is not good. Yeah. And so um, the bus job broken window principle applies. Breaking a window does not stimulate the economy. The, the, the Louisiana or New Orleans economy hasn't been stimulated by the destruction of Katrina. That's my first thought. <laughs> my second thought is a longtime theme that listeners will recognize, which is sometimes to escape from poverty, the best thing is to give people luggage. That is, help them get out of town, get somewhere different, start over, and that if they want. And in this yep. case, they were forced to leave. Um, right. Some of them were subsidized to leave. It made, they made people, the state made it easier for them to leave, which, which was a, a kindness um, for them. And they uh, took advantage of it. And they didn't come back because they did better elsewhere. And that's right. a good – that's a hidden lesson that I think is easy to forget. But the third thing to come back to the, what we've been talking about for the last – 15 or 20 minutes, which I think is important about the three legs and the simultaneity problem and what I've been calling over and over again the last six months, the prairie problem, the idea that things have to emerge in a certain sequence. There has to be certain things in place before these effects are important. You can't just snap your fingers and say, let prices adjust because there's these cultural and other factors. I, I, on an optimist, so I've been kind of pessimistic because I'm pushing you, but the optimistic view is the, is something like this. Your point is really that while while letting prices adjust or letting the free movement of labor and capital may not be a magic solution, uh, it's hard to get ahead without those things. Yeah. And perhaps, well, not perhaps, I believe that culture and the civil society part that we're talking about is one of the keys of, of economic development and decent life. It's all endogenous. It's all simultaneous. It's all emergent. And when we get the public policy a little bit better, the culture can change. It's not fixed in stone. So it is hard to change the rules of the game. Obviously, they're there for a set of incentives as well. They're there for a reason. But if you can have some heroism and some encouragement and some, maybe some economic understanding, you maybe can move to a place where you give the culture a chance to flourish that will and emerge that will make the system work a little bit better, all three legs. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean... I just uh, did a paper, just published a paper with Olga uh, Dacoria. You, 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 oh, sure. you might have, you yeah, might have had my her. student. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we did a paper on uh, what we've learned since the collapse of communism. Um, and uh, so uh, one of the things that we did this time, which was different, was we sent out a survey to leading economic reformers. Um, so, um, you know, Balcharowicz over in Poland and uh, various different, you know, kind of leaders or whatever, and uh, including uh, 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 Kornai, uh from Hungary, who's the sort of the famous economist and, and this. Um, anyway, so uh, one of the things that we came back from, we were struck by was um, how people, what they thought the lessons were. And two of them I'll emphasize, which relate to this last point that you just made, is that um, leadership 
and moral character of the population. Mm. Now, those are two things which economists are terrible at talking about, right? It's just Absolutely. not what we do. In our, yeah. So we ignore it. So we mainly yeah. ignore it. So we may. So think about like our standard economic models. Uh, we don't. We we want to make sure that individuals of measure zero, right? So that we're mainly talking about no. The person doesn't have any market power or whatever. And if he does, it's always going to be in a negative way rather than in a uh, a positive way. So we don't really talk about market makers as much. We might in our appreciative theory, but not in our actual, you know, sort of uh, textbook, uh, you know, yeah, form. That's in balls. And and so as a result, they what they found in these different discussions is you know, contingency of leadership. So, for example, in Russia, it mattered, for example, that, that uh, you know, Sobchak died of a heart attack because then the alternative was Yeltsin. It might not have been Yeltsin had Sobchak not, and, so, and he might have been a totally different kind of leader. Right. And, 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 you know, this kind of leads to this kind of weird area of conjectural history, you know, the what ifs, which is always a strange kind of you know, uh, uh, thing to think about, but I actually think it's hard for us not to. And let's go back even to your first, you know, point, which is extremely well taken, which is that a lot of economists did say at the time of Katrina that, oh, watch, you're going to see, you know, New Orleans is going to be actually more vibrant now. Well, it is true that more investment in direct building took place as measured by monetary outlays. Right. Yeah. It just turned out that if you study the data, all of a sudden there's a blip up in 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 spending on investment. Well, that's yeah. because you didn't capture the destruction. Right. That yeah. was or the pattern of resources that would have been spent elsewhere. So the what is seen, what is unseen is very real in all of these environments. And a lot of people get confused with that because of our uh, ideas. But the other thing is, as I think, is the why I call this. It's actually an idea that comes from the economist Steve Payovich, which is the interaction thesis. So between the, the cultural and, and social, the political and legal and the economic and financial sector, the interaction between those. Right. And so mm -hmm. I, what I, all I was saying before about the resiliency or trying to communicate is that I think the human spirit. Can get atrophied by various rules of the game. And we can become rather unpleasant people, but I think we can actually adjust. We can speed up much faster than what you might think. So at one time I was a college athlete. I haven't really been serious working out since my late 20s. I'm no longer like that. If I ever wanted to get back in that kind of shape, it would be a very, very long process and of course, I'm now 55 rather than, you know, 28. And so there's a huge difference in what I could maybe ever do. Um, but my my skill sets have atrophied in a way that I don't think the human character has atrophied. So I think that if you take a young man and you don't allow him to get a job and not working and all these things like that, he appears to be someone who might be have a lot of characteristics or character flaws. But all of a sudden, if you put him in a situation and you and, and you allow uh, him to find work and then see dignity in work, you might end up by seeing that change very quickly and and uh, much more quickly than we an imagine. So I don't think the dependency argument is as strong as we might 
think it to be. We do see the effects of a dependency culture, but that can be eradicated quickly by sort of changing the rules. And now what does that mean? And this goes back to a point you made about that it's not perfect, but it's, I always used to try to say in the shock therapy versus gradualism debates is that if you actually look into the analogy, which is a bad, you know, medical practice, but if you actually look, it's, it's not like they ever promised, I'm going to give you shock therapy and then tomorrow you're going to be a perfectly be normal healthy person. They said, we need to give you shock therapy to get you on the path to normalcy. And I think that that's what you always have to remember, because the way people thought about it in the judgment was gradualism versus shock therapy. And so, oh, you're a market fundamentalist. You believe in shock therapy. So aren't the results disappointing to you? And the question is, I don't think not that I gave a shock to the system, which, by the way, in many instances, they rhetorically called it a shock. But in reality, they never put any voltage on it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so you got to sort that out. But, yeah, uh, sure. but, you know, this idea that it's on the path. So I would think that if we change like the variable that's at our disposal is the rules of the game. We don't really have that much control directly over moral character Culture. or the other kinds of things. Yeah. yeah. So, I, you know, you, you've interviewed uh, Paul Romer on the cities. Uh, but I also think that one of the reasons why he started on the charter cities was precisely this issue that he became uh, focused on the idea that it's the rules of the game, which is the variable that we can. So if, if you can imagine baking a pie or something like that, you have recipes or rule, you know, these rules, you have, uh, you know, people and you have right. resources. Yeah, raw ingredients. Yeah, and the thing that you can play with, the raw ingredients are given, the people are kind of given, and the thing that as a policy analyst that you can adjust is the rules under which people interact with each other and interject, interact with resources. So we have to constantly fight the idea that all it is is the rules, right? But we have to recognize that rules might be the only thing that we can vary in the thought experiment. My guest today has been Pete Betke. Pete, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thanks, Russ. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.